Welcome to the Consulting Trap Podcast. I'm Brian Maddox, your host. With me today is Bradley Sherman, the author of The Super Age. Welcome, Bradley. Thanks. Good to be here, Brian. So, um, Bradley, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what you do and uh, your background, that would be most helpful. Sure thing. I'm a demographic futurist. And for most people who have met with or heard of futurists before, they probably think that that's a crock of you know what. Um, but demographic futurism is actually really important for business strategy. And that's a core part of our business is helping organizations understand a demographic shift that we're going through right now. And essentially what's happening is for about a solid 25 years, we've been in birth rate decline. And this means that we have smaller populations year on year that are coming into the workforce. At the same time, this is pushing up the average age of our population. So that means there's a lot more older consumers and a lot fewer younger consumers. That means there's going to be a lot more older workers and a lot fewer younger workers. And none of this is gloom and doom. Um, There are obviously some pain points that come with this, but the pain points really only show up when businesses don't pivot to their new reality. And getting businesses to understand this shift is, is a pretty big hurdle to get over. But once they do, they tend to build better products and services. Um, they tend to have a more harmonious work environment where there's up to five generations working together, and they improve their overall operational efficiencies. This is a, um, a course I can't imagine you took in college, right? How did you come <laughs> into this, this space? This is, a, this is an interesting space. Yeah, I did. Funny enough, I didn't take it as a course in college, but I realized the change was happening during college. Um, I, uh, like most people who get into the space of aging and longevity, uh, we get into it because of a loved one. Uh, Mine was my grandparents um, and especially my grandfather. And I would travel between Pittsburgh, where I grew up in Washington, D.C., where I went to school, all throughout college uh, while they were still alive. And on that trip, I would notice as I got into the center of Pennsylvania to Breezewood that the population had become incredibly old. It was incredibly white. Uh, It was lower income for the most part. And people who were very old were working in jobs that were um, jobs I would consider for teenagers. They were working in fast food. They were cleaning toilets at rest stops. They were pumping gas. And I thought to myself, wow, this is odd. Like, where are all the kids? And as it turns out, uh, the countryside is a real bellwether. Um, It's a canary in the coal mine, if you will, for a good old Pennsylvania reference, um, for what might be coming as it relates to demographic change, because people in the countryside are confronted with one more mega trend, as we call them, um, urbanization. They've lost young people to the cities. So what you see in the countryside is really old population. And it just became a a real focus for me. I became fascinated by it. And I knew that it couldn't be limited to the United States. Uh, And in fact, it isn't. Uh, Places like Japan, Germany, Italy, uh, about a half dozen or a dozen other countries right now are in this classification of becoming super aged. Um, That means that at least one out of five people within society are over the age of 65. And this is a first for humanity. This has never happened before. And believe it or not, In Japan now, because of their populations, uh, one out of three people are over 65. And last year, because they're actually in a period of depopulation now, they lost 644,000 people. They've been losing people year on year since 2008. 
And it's a big enough deal that even Elon Musk chimed in on it. So this is what our future looks like. Smaller populations, slower growth, which will have a dramatic impact on the bottom line for businesses. That's a, that's a pretty interesting uh, set of statistics. What, what was the, um, the process you went through uh, with this interest and starting to do this research on your own uh, mm-hmm. to turn it into a consultancy? How did that come about? Yeah, I mean, I was a, I was a company guy. Uh, 100%. I, I worked for a company called Leading Age, which is essentially a nonprofit um, institution that, that represents the long-term care community. And then I was recruited over to AARP, which everyone knows the American Association of Retired Persons, where I worked for 15 years. And I thought, this is my job. This is my passion. This is the place I belong. And in fact, for most of my working history there, I was very successful as an entrepreneur. Um, I was able to get big ideas um, out there. I was able to move the needle. Um, But around that 15-year mark, uh, my perspective started to change on the place. Um, You know, like most people who leave their work, I had a terrible boss, um, just abysmal. Uh, I was passed over for promotion uh, at the same time and thought to myself, my worldview is not fully aligned with theirs. I need to get out there and I need to do this on my own. Um, so I announced my departure. Um, I left, I had this great idea and I was going to change the world. And I had the wind at my back and I knew that this was going to convert into being a you know billion dollar company. It was going to be, you know, a unicorn. And I just thought, I can't wait to make it all happen. And, um, I fell on my face. That is a recurring theme. Hard. Um, because I think. I was lulled into a sense of security having worked for a, at the time, you know, a a nearly 38 million member organization with revenues exceeding $1.8 billion a year. That's a rich place to work. And within a rich place to work, you have everyone to do everything for you. There's a lot of cogs. Um, And while the cogs are an impediment to getting things done quickly, man, do they make it easy for accounting, uh, for taxes, for communications. There's always somebody to do some of the work. And coming out, um, and of course, that organization too, at the same time, was very bubbled. So it had kind of its own kind of cacophony of noise inside that didn't necessarily jive with reality on the outside. So my value proposition was mistaken. Um, I was just wrong with it. And I think I was just too early, quite frankly. I'm seeing other businesses attempting what I attempted three years ago, almost four years ago now, and they're seeing some success. But I didn't have that success. And within within nine months, I knew that it wasn't going somewhere. Um, Operations were shut down within a year um, from inception. And um, I pivoted to what is my current consulting practice. Uh, I sold a book. Um, and in fact, writing the book, prepping the book for sale to, to HarperCollins, who's the publisher, um, really was a nice way to refine my thesis of, of what was available in the marketplace to do. And today, the business is good uh, as a consulting business. Um, consulting is always going to be tough. It's always a grind. Um, but I'm in a position now where I'm reactionary, um, which is a far nicer place to be. People come to me for business. I'm not actively seeking business. So I'm taking that at get that piece out of there of BD. Um, BD comes in almost an organic way, not in a forced cold call way, which is how I started and not one of my fortes. 
it's increasingly common to find that, um, you know, that being skilled in a space or in a domain does not necessarily mean that you're great at sales in that domain. Right. Um, so as, so what I'm hearing just to, just to paraphrase is you, you, you sold a book and that essentially became the demand driver. Is that right? Yeah. And in, in many ways, I mean, obviously I I'm an expert in my field. So there's a natural inclination for people to come to me and say, Hey, can I get X, Y, or Z from you? Mm. But a book, a book is a wonderful calling card. And the process of writing a book, I think is probably as important, if not more important than writing a business plan, because it's the same skill set. You have to prove a thesis, you have to explain to investors and to yourself what you're doing, if what you're doing has value to it. And when you birth something like a book into the, 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 the marketplace of ideas, people notice it. Um, because you are more actively out there promoting your business. And, you know, I think, you know, we chatted before uh, last week about, you know, the trap that some of us fall into. And I think find that with my space, aging and longevity in particular, demographic trends and what's coming in the future is that it requires a lot of education. And that was taking up way too much of my bandwidth. And the book allowed me to just put it out there. You know, and those people that are are interested in the space can pick it up and understand it and read it. And those that aren't, um, they're not going to come along anyway. You know, it's it's like the old adage: you can lead a horse to water. And you know, when it comes to aging, longevity, demographics, this change, the super age that we're going into, it is a novel period. So just like there were people who took uh, took advantage of teenagers and the, the emerging youth market in the 1950s and the 1960s, um, there are going to be those people today that take advantage of the emerging super age marketplace. Um, this new group of people that are unlike any other group we've seen before, older, connected, active, both in their employment and as consumers. That's so, so how does that, um, how does the knowledge that you're bringing to the table from the, the industry specialty you have, um, how do you see that adapting and refining your consulting practice over time? Because mm. obviously you're, you're in a place where you almost caught lightning in a bottle, right? <laughs> you, you've got some, some great demographic stuff happening right now. You've got a lot of trends kind of pointing your way. How do you see that playing out for the consulting space, which is yeah. a lot of our listeners are consulting uh, consultants. How do you see that playing out in the consulting space over the next couple of, of months or years or well, like anything, you know, for, for me, for my expertise, you know, it's it's a lot of pivot, pivoting um, to what the market will actually uh, consume. You know, I whereas I see that, you know, innovation, design, investments are really key places for people to be. Folks aren't there yet. They're not mentally there yet. So whereas I can hold this expertise in the background, what I can sell to people today um, is more around inclusion, more around DEI, more around design, more around HR practice and compensation and benefit structures. And that's what I'm leading with right now. And it's converting in a pretty substantial way. It's also allowed me both writing the book and, you know, living the work of a consultant to see where there are real pain points in the marketplace. And the single biggest pain point right now in the marketplace for businesses is hiring talent. And it's interesting. I wrote a piece for Newsweek in February about the great, essentially the great resignation being a, a misread. 
And this article in Newsweek did incredibly well in terms of number of eyes and what have you. It converted to, you know, great speaking engagements, paid speaking engagements, which are the best of the best speaking engagements. And, um, but more so, it signaled to the world that, you know, this isn't just about a group of disaffected millennials walking away from their jobs. This is a fundamental shift in our labor market. And like I mentioned at the onset of this interview, you know, we've been in 20, essentially 25 years of birth rate decline. That means year on year, these generations get smaller and smaller. Uh, Gen Z is about five or six million people smaller than the millennial generation. That's significant. And Gen Alpha, which follows Gen Z, is even smaller than that. So when I speak to businesses today about their needs, they already know. They already know that they're hurting about recruiting and retaining people. What their aha moment is with me and my expertise is that they shouldn't be looking down for talent. They should be looking up. Um, that's interesting. Now, the the looking down versus looking up in terms of, I guess you're you're referring specifically to age. Is that right? Specifically to age. Yes. Um, um, how do you not to not to dig too deep into the weeds here? The natural inclination with a good conversation like this is you want to yeah. like oh, grab onto a bunch of it, um, but. But you also, uh, you know, at the same time, you're facing the trend of increasing automation. How do those things interrelate, at least at a high level? Um, yeah. How do you see that playing out? Well, it, automation typically takes lower skill jobs first. That's the historic trend. Um, there is a growing need in a period because we're also at the same time, just to throw in for fun, we're also in the midst of a fourth industrial revolution right now known as the information age. And things are changing at lightning speed. So where businesses um, would have looked at talent as somewhat disposable, I would say even, even five years ago, even pre-pandemic, businesses can't look at talent as disposable today. There's a finite supply. Okay. So because of that finite supply, we can't just build a new person. That doesn't work that way. Um, it takes, you know, in America, it takes a base number of 18 years to build a fully functioning human, um, most likely closer to 26. And I've spoken to plenty of parents who think it's closer to 40 these days. Um, but that in, that, you know, that in mind, you know, it doesn't take that long to build a machine. So what we need to be doing as businesses is we need to be investing in the talent that we have, making sure that they're upskilled uh, to be able to use the new technology technology because it's not so much automation taking jobs. They take plenty of jobs, don't get me wrong. It's more that people aren't um, digitally and technologically literate enough to manage the tech in their workspace. That's the bigger fear. So by investing in human talent to work with automated artificial intelligence, um, we can really improve efficiencies across the board. And time and time again, you know, these jobs that are more highly technical, those that actually use tech, uh, manage the robots, actually pay better at the end of the day, too. So it does tend to be a win-win. What the biggest challenge is, I think, for workers, if I can, if I can be so bold as to say that, is that this is happening at just a pace that we've never experienced before in our lifetime. Even during um, the last two industrial revolutions uh, where we were exposed to computers for the first time or, or the one in the late 1800s were exposed to manufacturing and industry in such a major way, it didn't happen at this pace. I mean, this is, it's hard to catch your breath on this one. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. So uh, it, with all of that, with, with all of the complexity, um, it, it definitely makes sense, I guess, uh, from a, from a uh, corporate, you know, enterprise level perspective to, to get, um, get an expert in the field to, to come out and help for sure. Yeah. Um, but for the, the smaller folks, for the small businesses and the medium-sized folks out there that may not be in a, a ready for that sort of um, uh, commitment and engagement level, what do you, what do you tell the, the little guy? Like, Hey, you know, I run a small mom and pop business. What, what can I walk away with as a mom and pop? Yeah. You know, it's so funny because people assume that only big business can do this can adapt. And it's actually the small businesses that are adapting better than the big ones because they don't necessarily have all these formal policies and procedures in place. So within a big business, we talk about building a new business case. C is that they have to compete for new talent uh, at a higher pace with salaries and benefits than they ever have before. Um, A is for augmentation. They have to augment people with technology and AI. S is that they have to support their workers um, through caregiving leave and novel benefits. And E is that they have to extend the working lives of of everyone uh, through ergonomics and education. So that's the new business case. But oddly enough, especially in rural communities, especially in smaller towns, places like Maine, Vermont, West Virginia, Delaware, even Florida, places that already have super aged populations. In fact, a third of all counties in the U.S. are super aged at this point already. Um, you're seeing mom and pop stores adapting already. They're building in flexibility for their workers uh, to take care of their parents or their children. Um, they're trying to put in novel benefits around caregiving leave. Um, they're doing these things naturally, but they're not calling it the fancy stuff the corporates call it. Um, they're just doing it because they need to keep Jane employed for a longer period of time. They need to keep Bob working the machines for a a longer number of years. And they're being pragmatic in their approach. But we don't capture this at places like Sherm because we're not looking at the mom and pops. We're looking at the medium and large and and global uh, employers at the end of the day, the big names. Right. So that that I, I guess the to to paraphrase the mandate for small businesses continue to be flexible. Well, the mandate for small business is be reactive to the environment you're in. In fact, that's the mandate for all employers. Um, the problem gets in the way that gets in the way is bias. Time and time again, We're, we have a bias towards young people, and until we see a clear and present danger to our business, we don't engage older people in a meaningful way. Well, I can tell you, and I encourage you, go up to Maine, go up to coastal Maine in the shoulder season, and you will see what a super age society looks like. Um, Most businesses close earlier now than later in the season. Um, The women and men who are working in these businesses are well into their 60s, even 70s, and maybe even 80s, um, things that would have been considered unheard of 10 or 20 years ago. And they're doing this for survival. They're not doing this because they feel good. And that was long, a long time. That was the argument. Even when I was at ARP, that was the argument that was made. Well, it just feels good to have old people working with you. Um, it's not about feeling good anymore. It's about operational efficiency, uh, operational success. I mean, even this past weekend, I was home in Pittsburgh, as you know, my, my hometown. And um, we went out to, to lunch. And I would say that at least three members of the busing staff at a high, at a high, high uh, a very nice restaurant in the city called... Um, um, uh, name doesn't matter at this point. Uh, it, 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 the hot, let me start over on that point. 
a third of the busing staff at this restaurant in Pittsburgh that we took my mom to for Mother's Day this week, and a third of them were at least 65 years old. So when you talk wow. about a job that you know isn't one that you would assume to be something that an older person would fill, and in fact, seeing a man who's in advanced age, gray hair, wrinkles, what have you, doing this type of job is jarring. It's really what the future is. It's about greater inclusion of age-diverse people in our workforce. And there are strategies that we bring to the table through our consultancy that help these businesses, whether they be mom and pops to multinationals that, that help them understand this and, and get to that reality faster. So this is this this presents a really interesting sort of challenge, right? To the whole um, um, the way our society is organized at, at a significant level, you know, we're told when we're young, like, okay, go get a good job. You'll, you know, obviously the pensions are gone, but you'll be able to eventually retire. And that's when you'll have reaped the benefits of all of your hard work and, and that kind of thing. And, yeah. and now you're saying, you know, you've seen, you know, folks that might traditionally have been considered elderly, you know, bussing tables, how do how do we explain that to the powers that be or to the labor force? I mean, that seems like a huge communication challenge. Yeah. I mean, read my book. I would suggest that for anybody who's listening today. <laughs> and that's not just a shameless plug, but retirement's a lie. Uh, retirement is a fundamental lie. And, and it's a lie that's been served to us for um, really since the inception of Social Security. It's not that it's ever, it was never intended that people would stop working. Um, you know, that kind of came about, that kind of evolved as, as an aspirational goal. But, but for nearly all of humanity, we worked until we couldn't work. We didn't work until we were told to stop. We worked until we couldn't work. So in the late 1800s, you know, in the first industrial revolution, there was this real push to, to create a pension. It started in Germany. It came, came across Europe into the United States into Japan. And the system was predicated on a large number of young people, a very small number of older people. And the assumption was that our lives would not extend, that we wouldn't see actual extension in, in, in humanity in, in the number of years that we live. And all of that kind of fell apart. You know, our birth rates continue to contract. Um, life expectancy for the whole um, has continued to expand, um, the system is simply not sustainable. So in many ways, this new period will herald a return to the old period. We will work for longer periods of time. And I'm sure the people who are listening today say, God damn it, I don't want to work past retirement necessarily. Um, but what people find time and time again is that working past retirement, that, six, that magical year of 65, is actually a really good deal. It's a really good deal because you stay flush with your finances for the most part. Um, but more importantly, you stay healthy. Um, you stay healthy because of uh, your social connectedness, um, because you're out and moving every day. You're at less risk of isolation and loneliness, which are, which are terrible for your health. Uh, and more than anything, you maintain um, uh, cognitive function at a higher rate too. You're, you're mentally fit. Um, so on the whole, it's good. But I think because of our shift in what work means, because people aren't company men and company women anymore, um, because we're moving into a period where folks want greater control over their working lives, 
we're going to see more demand for flexible work. So flexibility is obviously a key theme that you're going to hear throughout. But more than anything, you know, people want to choose their own adventure. So when they get close to that retirement age, um, they are starting to think about what their meaning is, what their purpose is. Um, and that, ha- that means a lot of things for different people. Okay. That could mean, you know, I want to build a company. I want to start my own company or I want to start my own, you know, or really focus on my vocation. It might mean I really want to take care of my grandkids. Um, it might, it could mean anything really, uh, truly. So with that in mind, you know, businesses really need to think about, you know, uh, tailoring what later life working means for their employees, Um, There are companies that are doing, I think, a really great job with this right now. Companies like UPS, companies like CVS that offer flexible work arrangements in later life that allow people to kind of choose their own adventure. Uh, Some companies have created for their knowledge class of workers um, consulting type roles uh, where they can pick and choose what type of work they actually do. Some workers who are on the factory floor are promoted into pseudo managerial rules roles rather, where they, you know, uh, oversee workers a couple days a week. So there are ways to get to this. Like, this is not something weird, but it does require human resource professionals and, and frankly, corporate leaders to say, we get it, there's a shift, and we have to modify the way we behave as an employer to, to meet the needs of tomorrow. Bradley, I I feel like we could talk for days. This is such a, a nuanced and, and and rich topic, um, but we 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 unfortunately do need to call the show to an end here. Um, how will uh, first off, who should who should be reaching out to you, uh, and secondly, as a as a follow up, um, how should they do so? Uh, the best way to get me is at thesuperage.com, uh, Bradley at thesuperage.com by email, and of course, I'm at all social channels via at Bradley Sherman, um, there are few people that shouldn't be talking about demographic change now. Um, This will affect every enterprise in some way. Um, And I can't stress that enough. It will affect your overall efficiencies. It will affect your overall ability to recruit and retain talent. And for those of you who are in the production of products and services, uh, it will change what those products and services look like because the population that is consuming them will be older on on the whole. So what the super age brings to the marketplace are really um, strategies that are proven to work, um, approaches that we know may seem novel, uh, but are grounded in reality. Um, And we want to help you transform your own enterprise to meet the needs of this new era. Wow. I can't wait to hear more. I definitely want to circle back with you in a year or so and kind of figure out what's going on. This is uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. It was great being here. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Consulting Trap. If you have suggestions for future episodes or would like to be a guest on our show, please send me an email at brian at podcastchef.com. That's B-R-I-A-N at P-O-D-C-I-S-T-C-H-E-F dot com. Before we go, we'd like to thank the sponsor of our show, Podcast Chef. Podcast Chef helps turn ordinary podcasting into a revenue-generating lead magnet for your consulting business. Our podcasting done-for-you service takes away the headache of starting up and running your own podcast. Reach out now to take advantage of our 30-day money-back guarantee. 
Visit us at podcastchef.com to find out how our team of experts can help you leverage podcasting to take your business to the next level. Hey, you. Yes, you. It's uh, 2024 and you don't have a podcast yet. Or maybe you do, but you're struggling with it. Uh, we will talk to you about that uh, for free. We'll help you figure out uh, where you might be stuck, uh, whether or not we can help you for sure. But also, uh, if you don't have one yet, what are the like first five things you can do? Uh, what are some great angles that you can use to make sure that your podcast was sustainable as you start to develop that moving forward? Uh, those consults are free. So reach out at the link below uh, in the show notes or email me at brian at podcastchef.com. Thanks. Hi, this is Brian. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, our website, podcastchef.com, has a ton of useful information about how to best leverage podcasting to help you solve some of your business goals and challenges. You can also schedule a demo uh, where we can show you how specifically Podcast Chef and our team can help you with some of your podcasting goals. Thanks. Thanks.